A reminder to turn off your cell phones. My name is Kristen Krein, and I will be moderating today's session. This talk today and following question and answer will be recorded and available on SACPA's website. For lunch today, a reminder that we are in the trial period of an $11 soup, bread, and dessert. So in six weeks, we'll be revisiting SACPA's meals. So if you have any comments, please leave them in the comment box outside or talk to Knud or anyone else. SACPA sessions are a 25 to 30 minute presentation, lunch, and then the question period following, finishing around 1.30. Thank you for joining us today. The topic is out of the home and into history, intersectional and systemic barriers to leaving abusive relationships. Our speaker today is JC Walker. JC Walker is the awareness and public education coordinator at Safe Haven Women's Shelter in Tabor and a dedicated community activist. They graduated with a degree in sociology from the University of Lethbridge with a minor in women and gender studies. In the past, JC was a coordinator for the Campus Women's Center, a SACPA publication editor, and an Elperg board member. Please join me in welcoming JC Walker. Thank you for that introduction. Um, so, uh, Kristen already told you who I am. Um, I guess I'm just going to tell you a little bit about why I'm here today. Um, most of you have heard of the Me Too um, and Time's Up campaigns that have been circulating social media. And, um, you know, Knud approached me being like, people want to know, like, why are people silent about their assaults? Why aren't people leaving abusive relationships? Why are we only talking about this? Um, right now and why, the, why is this getting so much attention now. So um, in the context of this, I'm going to address these questions coming from my position that I uh, hold at Safe Haven. Um, so today we're going we're gonna to look actually at assault and abuse itself first um, because these questions identify a need to understand more about what abuse can look like, um, what it can feel like. Um, so maybe we can shift our questioning from why aren't people speaking or leaving, um, to how can we create communities that are supportive of people who want to disclose, um, and even how can we create uh, communities that don't teach and normalize abuse. Um, most of the abuse and assaults, assaults that happen are between two people who are intimately connected. Uh, depending on the demographic, we know that around 85 to 93 percent of assaults and abuse happen with housemates, uh, relationship partners, um, co-workers, things like that. So uh, for this presentation, even though I acknowledge um, the structural issues of, of uh, institutional racism and sexism and things like that, I really want to take this to an intimate and interpersonal level so that we can actually understand how to even begin um, approaching these topics in, in our everyday lives. Um, so a quick overview. Um, we're going to just unpack abuse. We're going to go through some of the the things that socialize abusive behaviors and look at those behaviors themselves. Um, then we are going to go over some of the barriers to leaving. And actually, everything that I talk about can be understood as a barrier to leaving an abusive relationship or, or speaking about your experience. Um, we're then going to introduce a concept which some of you may or may not be familiar with. It's trauma-informed approaches, um, which is something that has been taking over social service industries and abuse prevention work for the last 
couple of years. Um, and then we're, if we have time, we're going to look at some transformative community support and some actual strategies that everyone here can use in their everyday lives if someone decides to disclose an experience um, or if you see an assault happening. And we have a couple of objectives, just things to keep in mind um, as, as I talk and like throughout the question period, is that um, we're going to try and move past binaries um, and things that are more punitive to focus on more emotional, emotion-focused perspectives and understanding that this isn't about men and women who are abusers. This is about a culture of abuse that we socialize and approaching it like that as a community um, and acknowledging all of our responsibility in, in tackling this extremely complex and very normalized uh, problem. First of all, let's unpack abuse. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about is gendered socialization. Um, I also, I guess, actually, before we go into this, just want to acknowledge that um, there is a survey done here, um, Perceptions of Family Violence and Bullying, and so we have some actual Albertan statistics that give us insights into what we think in this province about these topics. Um, so there's a lot of misconceptions about abuse. 22% uh, of Albertans think that, um, I'll just put it back, that uh, stalking a spouse or an intimate partner is not abuse. 23% uh, think that preventing women from working outside of the home is not abuse. And 31% that disowning a family member for their sexuality is not violence or abuse. So we know that there are lots of common misconceptions, and that's why we always start with what abuse looks like and why it's happening. Um, so on one side of the binary, uh, the westernized gender binary is uh, something that happened in this, in this country um, from processes of colonization, as we know. Um, lots of other cultures and um, species don't believe in two binaries. Um, but this is what we socialize. So from an emotion-focused perspective, uh, when we think about masculinity, um, we're encouraging anger as an emotional strategy for men. Um, all other emotions are feminized and not really respected. Um, and respect is gained through dominance, force, and control. And this, this sounds abrasive, but when you look at um, behaviors on a small level, you can see you can see this happening, you know, like if you're insulted, like it's better to be defensive than it is to be like, yeah, you know what, that's right. You know, it's better to save face. Um, and people's worth, people who are socialized as men, their worth is often attached to this sense of masculinity, uh, which isn't really connected to their everyday lived experiences. Um, so we're teaching men to have poor coping mechanisms when it comes to interpersonal relationships and to have defense mechanisms that are aggressive. When it comes to women, um, emotions are feminized and a burden, just like femininity. Um, insults, you know, I won't say some of them, but ones that are like specific to bodies or even insults that are um, used for men, like, like that's girly or, or like sissy, you know, like I have a five-year-old in my life and he understands those things as the most insulting things that you could be called. Um, so we know that femininity is understood as degrading and that negative attention is defining female worth. Um, I can speak for myself and a lot of the people that I've worked with over the last five years that um, being harassed or stalked or um, having extreme possessive behavior and jealousy is often like someone cares about me. Um, someone is giving me attention and validating me. Um, so this is often what we're teaching people from a very young age. People become socially aware of gender uh, age four and five, um, 
and this is uh, very institutional. So abuse, generally, the behaviors that we're seeing from these socializations, um, it's about violence and control. And abuse specifically, it's a pattern. Um, assaults can certainly be individualized. But these are tons of examples of things that we see every day um, in this area across the world. Um, we have more physical ones, like the examples at the top, um, possessive ones accompanying you everywhere, making choices for you. Um, there's this thing called gaslighting, which is essentially making you doubt your reality and making you think that you're crazy. Um, we see this all the time and in media too, and often it's a joke of femininity to be like you're crazy. Um, and this can actually have very severe consequences. Um, sexual coercion and sexual violence, like we're seeing in the media, um, having sex with you when you're asleep, making you prove your love, um, preventing you from important things in your life, like sleeping, working, your health. Um, preventing you from leaving, threatening suicide, deportation, physical violence. Uh, these are all tons of things that we see at the shelter, that we see at, on campus, that we see um, in all of our relationships every day. And, you know, it's also things that we all do, and anyone can have these behaviors, because we're actually socialized to, to use these behaviors as coping mechanisms. So it's okay um, if you look at this list and acknowledge that someone in your life, or even you, have have had these kinds of behaviors, because that's pretty normal. Um, emotionally, in an abusive relationship, you can also feel like you're walking on eggshells around your partner to avoid upsetting them. Um, your feelings and opinions are rarely validated. Your partner is mistrustful of you for no reason. Um, you can't talk about things openly, and you might feel stuck, you know, that feeling of, of being stuck. And you also might love them a lot, and this is important to acknowledge. An emotion-focused perspective essentially says that we can't do abuse prevention without knowing what are the primary emotions behind our behaviors. Um, in a lot of abuse prevention work, when you just talk about behaviors and tell people to stop doing these things, they can access, like, they're not going to be able to stop doing it without understanding, like, why they feel the need to do those things. Um, and actually, it can perpetuate shame um, that they're not able to develop better strategies. So we have to look at the primary things, which are often these things on the left here. Um, shame, fear, insecurity, worthlessness, um, often can, can build up in attention and make you feel frustrated and afraid and desperate. And then we try and control those feelings by controlling other people, essentially, and our environments. Um, this is a really common practice in counseling, is identifying these kinds of things, and really important. And essentially, it leads to this, what we call a cycle of abuse. So the tensions build, um, communication breaks down, some kind of incident happens, which is where we see an assault or an abusive pattern. Um, then there's a reconciliation, you know, things die down. Um, often, especially if you have an actually abusive partner, this will be also a time when things get diminished because they're feeling ashamed or embarrassed of their response, and that's how they decide to deal with that. And then the incident is forgotten. Um, no abuse is taking place. This is also the time when emotional intimacy will deepen and uh, trust is reestablished. And lots of people will take this as evidence that actually their partner is great and like everything's fine. Um, and it's a pattern that we see all the time, you know, um, makes a lot of sense when you look at it emotionally too. From our shelter, um, some of the statistics that we see in terms of abuse. Uh, First of all, most of the people coming to the shelter are leaving an abusive situation, 
as you can see, safe haven over 81% and provincially 84. Um, last year, our top kinds of abuse that we're seeing with people who are accessing our emergency housing is emotional and psychological and verbal abuse, this kind of category. So actually, the physical, domestic violence and assault that we often think about is not usually the thing that's impacting people the most. Um, physical abuse is next, though, and financial, sexual neglect is a really important one to acknowledge. So like, if you're getting zero of your emotional needs met in life, um, and even physical, that even though nothing directly is happening to you, that kind of passive violence is extremely impactful. And spiritual abuse in this area is also high. This number is maybe ill-reflective of that, too, um, that these kinds of control mechanisms are often, um, we revert back to our belief systems. Um, we're seeing that in a lot in these communities, too. We're now going to talk about barriers specifically. Um, there are lots of barriers to leaving, and you know, overall, they can be really understood if we look at the complexities and intricacies of institutional racism, sexism, colonialism, um, you know, even resource-based, um, not having access to a shelter, things like that. Like, our services are not reflective of the needs that we have. Um, but I want to highlight three ones that we see a lot on, in frontline work. So we're going to talk about increased violence after leaving, we're going to talk about distrust in our institutions due to dehumanization and oppression, and also the impact of trauma and what this can do during an act of violence and also when we have to come to terms with what's happening afterwards. So here's the first one I want to go over. Um, we have some really good uh, statistics from Statistics Canada. Um, the last numbers we have, though, are in 2011, just so you know, but... Um, we do have that um, after people leave relationships, they are killed and violence is enacted against them. Um, here is specifically gendered. Um, so we have 26,600 women and 6,600 men experiencing post-violence separation. If you think about it emotionally, you know, um, you've finally like, had something taken away from you that you might believe belongs to you and you feel like you have a lack of control. So this can definitely instigate like in a very strong emotional response where people are trying to regain, regain control. Um, jealousy is also one of the, there's a note on the statistic, it's one of the biggest factors. And jealousy is essentially just about self-worth and about viewing someone as your property um, and not being able to understand those boundaries. Um, so it's really important to acknowledge that when we ask why don't people just leave and we get frustrated when our friends stay with their, their abusive partners, that actually isn't the best option for them as a blanket statement anyways, um, especially if we're not considering other, other options. Um, it's really important. The other thing I want to go over is distrust in, um, in our institutions. This here is a graphic from RAIN, um, a sexual assault institution in the United States, and it kind of gives you a visual perspective of out of all of the, the rapes that are happening, um, only around 10% are even reported, and if you go down the line, you see that um, only six um, out of these 310 cases are even prosecuted. And as we all know, the, the legal system um, can be very dehumanizing and can be re-traumatizing, um, so often people are like, why would I bother? Um, why would I bother going to the police um, when I'm not even going to get any resolution, any justice, and it's going to be a lot of money and, um, you know, not really be 
less harmful than not talking about it. Um, in Canada, only one in ten substantiated sexual assaults result in a conviction. And you know, I've heard firsthand from lots of people um, when youth disclose assaults or abuse, they're like, "You're going to get in trouble." Do you know that this is a serious accusation? Like, you know, these are things that people are trained to respond. Um, maybe that's changing now, actually, but it's very much institutional. Um, we also have some good statistics from that same family violence survey. Um, which 22% of Albertans aged 16 to 34 think that involving authorities will help. 32% of Albertans aged 35 to 54 think it will, and 34% of Albertans aged 55 and up think it will help. So no, no matter the age category, no more than 34% of people in this province actually believe that this is a, a viable solution to dealing with our, our abuse and assault problems. Um, so really important to think about when we're thinking about what strategies are going to be useful and what resources we're referring for people who are disclosing these experiences in our lives. We're now going to look at trauma-informed approaches. Um, I am not a specialist on the brain, um, but I do know a bit about trauma, so we're going to go through some things about what happens to your brain. Um, you know, I think that people can get very frustrated when... Um, you know, there are kind of myths about, like, why did you let this happen to you? Why aren't you talking about it? Um, why aren't you seeking help in the ways that are laid out for you? And when you understand trauma, you really do understand why people... It makes a lot of sense. Um, we're going to go through it. It's a huge barrier for people. Um, and, yeah, it gets us thinking about things like choice, recovery, and emotional impact. Um, and what's actually happening to us when we're going through these experiences? So during a traumatic event, um, trauma, first of all, is something that just feels too much too fast. Um, there's no specific definition. It actually all depends on your own personal coping strategies and your own experiences. Um, it disconnects you from all sense of what's safe um, and loving. So it's a personal interpretation, and that's important to acknowledge. Um, you have different parts of your brain. Um, so the neocortex is your problem-solving and logic part of the brain. Um, that's a slower part of the, of the brain. And the, the part of your brain that deals with fear and pleasure is called your limbic system. Um, this means that, uh, sorry, lost my notes. Here we go. Um, yeah, the neocortex is your conscious brain dealing with logic, imagination, planning, and control. And because it's your conscious brain, it's slower than your limbic system. So it's not working as fast. The part that actually signals an alarm is your amygdala. So you can see through the, from the picture that the amygdala is a part of your limbic system. It senses danger and sets off an alarm and essentially instigates survival responses where you either experience fight, flight, or freeze. And these are very common terms that we're dealing with in any kind of abuse prevention work, any kind of crisis or frontline work. Um, and understanding that you know, the, the logical or intellectual things that you might know about abuse or about consent or whatever it is might not be accessed during times when you're feeling extreme panic and fear. These are some of the details of those responses. And when you look at them, I'm sure that you um, have felt, you know, at least one of these before. In fight, you're prone to want to cry and punch, and you're feeling like you're going to explode. Um, you also often have suicidal feelings because you're just overwhelmed with what's happening to you. In flight, you want to leave. You feel trapped. You feel suffocated. Um, 
you feel anxious, your body has a lot of restless symptoms. And freeze, which is more of a new one over the last couple of years in this kind of research, um, actually is very relevant to sexual violence and assault um, in the context of these campaigns. Feeling stuck in your body, feeling cold and numb, um, apathetic, essentially just checking out as a coping mechanism. You know of some animals that just kind of like fall over or lay down. This is kind of what this can what this can look like, and so it's really important when we're teaching people about consent to understand that passivity or silence um, is not an appropriate signal of consent because often people will just kind of check out of their body um, in order to deal with whatever is happening with them. Trauma and abuse from someone that you know personally can also be longer lasting and more severe. And we know that most assaults and most abuse happens from people that we know in some capacity. Um, in part, this is because it's harder to recognize and name an act of assault or abuse. Um, you know, it's someone you love, it's someone you trust, um, someone you think is a good person. And so this is also a barrier and reluctance um, in seeking support and telling other people. If people are not able to name or label their experience as assault, they are also less likely to view the impacts of the things that are happening to them as the impacts of violence. And this can lead a lot to shame and self-blame. You know, if they don't understand that what's happening to them is unacceptable, they're like, you know, this, this has to be with something that I've done um, because that was acceptable behavior. It can lead to them not trusting their own judgment um, and the sense of betrayal that they feel at their partner and also the societal beliefs that are repeatedly denying their experience of, as one of violence. And we see this in the media too and when cases aren't, aren't put to, to trial or even successfully prosecuted, um, we're kind of like, well, is this violence? Because every single person and institution is telling me that it's not, and yet I'm terrified. You know, and if you think about the emotional disconnect that that can have, and there's a kinds of um, coping mechanisms that people are developing because of that, um, we can understand a little more about, about the emotions that go behind these things. Um, so finally, I want to talk about transformative community support. Um, the reason why I want to talk about this in an interpersonal way is because um, a lot of the strategies and solutions that we have are on an institutional level. And it's always important to keep the ideology um, in focus and in scope when we're thinking about individual practice. But I know a lot of people are like, what do we even do though? Like, what do we actually say? Um, this is something that I've struggled with a lot in working in these kinds of um, social services too is like we actually often don't have specific strategies um, that will keep each other accountable and build that emotional intimacy, build these coping strategies, especially when people don't have a lot of access to different kinds of resources or people in their lives. Um, so if we do, like a lot of us do, have the capacity to learn different skills and learn what works, then we should be doing that. Number one, the first thing to build a trusting and respectful society and culture when it comes to these topics is knowing exactly what to do when someone tells you about something that's happened to them. A lot of people are socialized to be like, I need to fix something, I need to offer suggestions, because they obviously just haven't thought about it. But remember the trauma, like they might know things, but they might just need a lot of emotional validation because they're, they're coming from an emotional place. Um, so the very first thing to do is to validate somebody and just make them feel heard. And then they're going to be able to de-escalate themselves or, you know, feel supported. And 
maybe you can talk about solutions later down the road. But the very first thing to do is be like, listen, first of all, don't interrupt at all. Um, and just tell them that like, thank you for trusting me. Like, I know how hard this can be. I know that lots of people don't believe this. I believe you. Um, this is really important. I'm here for you. I'm glad you told me. What do you need? These are things that you can practice. Everyone wants to hear the same thing. And I know that sounds depersonalized, but it's actually very humanizing to hear comforting things. Um, so practice these. I'll share these slides. <laughs> um, it's really important. And the other thing that we can do is understand bystander engagement. Um, there are lots of things that we can do, but understanding that they're depending on the person um, and the situation and where you're seeing an assault or um, an abusive relationship in your life, that there's always some way that you can intervene that's appropriate and safe for you. And you just have to put the work in to determine what those things are. Um, this is actually a great resource that um, I pulled from the Calgary Sexual Health Center in Calgary. They do great bystander engagement training. And they talk about the four Ds um, of bystander training if you see something bad happening to someone. Um, this is also useful if something bad is happening to you, potentially, um, you can know how to ask for help. So first of all, you can direct. Um, so you can directly intervene. You can be like, hey, this isn't okay. Um, you know, whatever way that can be safe, depending on what the situation is. You can distract. You can interrupt someone. You can um, be like, hey, look at this. Or, hey, I think we, I, we have a mutual friend over here. Let's go over here. Or, you know, um, do something that allows you to diffuse the situation and maybe even talk to the person who's... Um, who's having violence enacted against them. Um, you can delegate. Not everyone's going to know what to do. I don't always know what to do, and I consider myself fairly trained. So sometimes we just need to be like, hey, so-and-so, can you help me with this? Um, that's also a, a perfectly appropriate intervention. And if you can't do anything and it's a more severe situation, just make sure that you follow up with the person afterwards. Um, it's really important to make sure that even if something bad has happened, that they know that you're a supportive person in their life. Um, because we know from all kinds of research, whether you're a youth or an adult, that having one supportive person in your life that won't try and judge you or um, take control of your life or make decisions for you is uh, the biggest impact in healing from violent experiences. So um, there are a lot of kind of lots of things packed into this topic um, and I expect that we'll get into more of them during the question and answer period but I ultimately just want to say that thinking about what safety means um, thinking about things like accessibility um, to resources uh, one of the myths that we have is that all people need is access to what we currently have um, but actually some of our resources aren't effective and the way that we're delivering them because people exist and people's opinions exist um, you know, if they experience someone being judgmental towards them, then that resource is no longer safe for them. Um, so thinking about more than just accessibility, like how can we transform our communities? How can we keep our personal relationships accountable? How can we um, develop new strategies to actually reflect the emotional experiences that we're ha having um, in our lives? Um, and taking the time to learn about how these things are all embedded in our institutions and how these have a bigger impact on some people than others um, is really important and that abuse and assault is very normalized and most people that I know um, have hurt someone. Um, once you learn what abuse and assault can look like, you can understand 
that everyone is doing it. Um, so this isn't something to be afraid of. Um, and resources like Safe Haven, like all kinds of uh, institutions that are working towards abuse prevention can provide you with a lot more strategies and a lot more important research um, on these topics. And you can talk to me about that too if you want more resources after this. Um, but I'm pretty sure that's all I have to say. And yes, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.